Dave's Five Hot Takes. Yeah! Baby, we're back. <laughs> Welcome back to uh, Dave's Five Hot Takes. It's me, Dave. I'm glad you guys are back. Um, I can tell from the looks here in the class that everybody's just, look at you guys, everybody's big old wide eyes and smiles. Um, and I'm really glad to be back, too. I'm excited about these takes today, these hot dishes, hot takes. Uh, we got some really fun ones. Um, of course, I'm biased, so I hope you guys agree. But uh, without further ado, let's jump on into this thing. Whoosh. Hot take one. All right, we're jumping right in here with the Nax My Sharona is our hot take one, or the Kanak, <laughs> just <laughs> depending on how you pronounce the band name. I actually know this song from the Reality Bite soundtrack. I don't know if you guys and gals remember that soundtrack. I never saw the movie. I still have it, but I loved that soundtrack. It had... Um, Lisa Loeb's Stay, which I think was kind of what was the, you know, super hit on that on that uh, album. But man, it had World Party was on there. So many good songs on that soundtrack, uh, Crowded House. Anyway, I love this song. It came on the radio the other day and it was like one of those, you know, what happens a lot on this podcast where I was kind of listening to it now as a, you know, professional quote unquote singer songwriter and really was listening to like all the quirks of that song. So here's some fun facts about that song. It came out in 1979. It was Capitol Records second fastest uh, number one debut song uh, behind the Beatles. Um, I want to hold your hand or I should say it was the fastest gold status debut single since the Beatles. I want to hold your hand and, I, and it came out. In, that one came out in 1964. This was 79. So it's 15 years later. Um, it was a six week number one on the Billboard Hot 100. So th- it was a massive monster song. Um I read about it and it was named after a real life girlfriend by one of the two guys that wrote it in the band and they wrote it in like 15 minutes. And that feels like, it's one of those songs that that kind of makes sense because you hear it and it feels like a song that was written in 15 minutes. Not in the construction is bad, that's not what I mean, but it's just so weird you kind of feel like somebody wrote it quickly because if they had sat long enough they'd have been like, eh, is this cool or not? Um, which I'm very glad they didn't because it would have been a tragedy if the world was at, was without this song because it's such a wonderful, weird little moment in rock pop history. But so here's the quirk I want to talk about. There's kind of a couple. One, just kind of the, the, how cool the, and weird the chords are. So, you know, there's it's in G. So it's doing G, which is the one four to flat three, right? Which is not really anything new. It does that cool thing in the chorus when it goes, and we give it up, I'm give it up to the touch of the other kind. My, 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 woo. So it does, um, the, uh, the chorus rather is one, flat three, four to, uh, to flat six. So it's really cool. It's a cool, weird, awesome chords. It just, you can feel kind of like, feels like rock and roll. You're like, oh, this is weird, you know, kind of pumping your fist. Then they do the bridge. And this is what really got my attention on this song. So I read a tweet. Uh, I was sort of looking around with the song and, and reading stuff about it. And this guy tweeted, like, don't you kind of feel like maybe the better song in My Sharona was the bridge? <laughs> and I sort of laughed at it because I don't think that's true because I think it's a, it's just Teflon. This song is such a hit. It just, it can withstand anything. But it does this weird thing where it kind of creates another song inside a song. So instead of doing like some solo. They don't do some weird solo over these weird chords. They instead do this. And they have this little instrument melody, and it's just this total departure. Like, it has nothing to do with that song. It's a key change in the whole thing. They get out of it by actually going to the five of the G, which is D, to go... 
So after. Which that's a cheat code for songwriters. If you just want to get back to the previous key, do the five of the previous key out of nowhere and it gets you back to the key. It's like you don't have to worry. It's just wonderful cheat code. It's like a song hack. But it's just so great because they they create another hook that has nothing to do with the song inside of the song that's a bridge. And and you see this sometimes. In fact, I was listening to a Song Exploder uh, on a run the other morning and Dan Wilson was talking about in closing time how... Uh, that bridge, he just wanted something that felt like a different total musical journey. And, you know, at the risk of sounding a little check me out, or not check me out, but talking about myself, I, I, that's one of my favorite things to do in my songs. I have a song called Annie that I wrote with Gabe Dixon where we do this. And, it, you know, I just love creating a different moment, like a completely different moment in the song. It gets away from it's an instrument moment. It's not sung. It's just like let's sort of create a new landscape for 25 seconds before it returns to the other song. But what the knack does here so effectively is it's not just another melody or moment. It's another hook. It's like, I mean, it's so hooky. You wonder if they had thought about it more, if they'd have gone, you know what? Hey man, let's write another bridge around that song. Cause I think we got a great song there, but I remember somebody telling me in high school, right? When I was starting to think about writing songs, they were like, don't don't keep best parts for other songs. Put them in the songs with the other songs so you just have a bunch of best parts. Because I think there's always a temptation to be like, oh, what if we made this a song? And they were like, no, no, no. It just makes a song that much more bulletproof. It makes it that much more substantial by throwing in a super hook of a bridge that has nothing to do with the rest of the song. It's wonderful. And I think, you know, it's that kind of like brazen attitude, I think, that uh, and I love it when it gets celebrated in music, it, it becomes a hit that people are like, yeah, we don't care that you change keys and turn literally into a different vibe. You know, I've talked about this on Lionel Richie's Say You, Say Me, how bizarre that bridge is. Um, and I, I maybe need to do a podcast on weird bridges, uh, but this would be another one for me, you know, because I think it's just such a weird look that really pays off. And obviously the, the sort of, po- you know, population of the world went, yeah, we're good with that. Like thumbs up. <laughs> Hot take two. Hot take two. Okay, we're going to talk about, to me, um, a a baseline in one of the best songs of all time. We're not going to do a deep dive on the song yet, maybe someday, but I want to talk about the synth baseline on Time After Time and how incredible that is. And we'll get to that in a second, but let me back up one step. This is a song by Cyndi Lauper. It was was released in 1984. She wrote it with Rob Hyman, who was also in a band called The Hooters, who had hits uh, on their own. Fun fact about The Hooters, which I love these kind of deep dives. It was founded by Rob and this guy, Eric Bazillion, who I think made a bazillion dollars also in his career because he produced and co-wrote One of Us by Joan Osborne. And I think that album garnered a bazillion Grammys. So he lived up to his last name. I don't know if he changed his last name once he recorded those to just sort of live up to the hype. But um, but so those two guys were in a band called The Hooters. Rob then went to go write time after time with Cyndi Lauper. And it was a huge hit. Um, it was a hit for two, I think it was a number one for two or three weeks in 1984. Um, but it's one of those songs that it's funny because now it's got a it's got a bazillion plays. There you go. Um, so it's funny because it was only a hit for a couple of weeks, but it has to be one of the most played songs in the history of pop music. I mean, it's, it's just everywhere. Um, and I, especially another small asterisk, I love those moments in music where somebody from another band co-writes a song with somebody in another band for that other band, and then that song is a hit. In this case, Rob, who's in the Hooters, who writes with Cyndi Lauper and has a Cyndi Lauper hit. 
One, because yes, that's sort of what I do. I try to do in my career. So I think I have an extra heart for that because I just love seeing these moments where it wasn't a professional songwriter, quote unquote, that co-wrote time after time. It was a guy in another band who maybe Cindy just loved the Hooters and was like, hey, I want to write with this guy, Rob, or I don't know how they were set up. But I love that he had his own career as an artist and then sort of sidestepped into this other thing and wrote that song with her. And it was a huge hit. Um, it is one time after time is one of my favorite songs of all time. There's no doubt. I would also say to me, in my gentle, humble opinion, it's it's like if the, if I could put ten or twenty songs in a time warp or you know send it off into space in, in the event that aliens find it and go, what is this stuff that humans like? I really think it's that good of a song. I think it achieves everything it's trying to do, and I would say especially in the sentimentality. Uh, and how beautiful the sentiment is and how it just makes you feel it. I mean, those flange guitars or whatever's happened there, it's so cheesy, but gosh, it feels right in this song. And this is where I'm going with this, especially this bass part, this synth bass part. If you notice, you know, so the song is, uh, so the chorus is, or the pre is, uh, Suitcase memories, time after time. Yeah, that part. But then the chorus, lost in your luck. Let's meet you. I don't know. Find me, time after time. Right, it's such a great chorus. You're lost in your luck, and you'll be waiting. One of the greatest folk of all time. Time after time. But if you notice what happens is that synth bass is loud as fire. And it does, the bass does not come in until the choruses on the whole song. I think it may be around the bridge, which is a rad guitar part. I should really do a whole take on this, a whole podcast on this one song, maybe later. But that guitar part on the bridge is, is just bad to the bone. But they really want you to hear this bass. And that's the point I'm trying to make. If you think about, we think about the podcast where I've talked about You Give Love a Bad Name, Heaven is a Place on Earth, that era in the 80s where bass parts were almost as important as the choruses. They juice this bass part volume wise, so you hear it, and it's that do 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 I'm butchering it, boom boom, but it's something like that. It's so loud, but what it does, and and for those non-music people, it just makes the song move. It makes the song lift. It makes the song feel something, because most of the song is these. You know, you're having movement, but there's no bass to support the movement. And then when the bass comes in, it doesn't just support the chords. It's not just going. It could do that. It says doom, so it's almost a hook. In fact, most people without knowing it could probably sing that bass part because it's so pronounced. And I think that's such a genius move by the producers and songwriters. I don't know who made that call, but that they go, we want this bass part to make the song move and add even more sentimentality because you feel something, you feel the movement, your heart gets involved, and. And that movement, then it kind of disappears in the rest of the song, which when it comes in, again, it's that much more pronounced. And I love that. I love little moments in music where this happens, and especially on songs that are this good, that it does twice the damage, or the good damage, I guess, which is going to be the name of my next record. Hot Take 3. All right, Hot Take 3. This is a hot take I've wanted to do, literally, since the inception of this uh, of this podcast. And I've wanted to talk about this little anomaly in, in, or this quirk, right? So the band Sugar Ray, not Sugar Ray Leonard, the boxer, but Sugar Ray, the band, which has, you know, Mark McGrath, who's, who's kind of become a sort of a pop culture guy, um, who I really like, actually. I love, I think he's got a great sense of humor. And I think he's, he's, I'll tell you what, I, fun fact about Mark McGrath. If you ever see him on a 
like a celebrity quiz show that is music themed, nobody is going to get within a mile of how good he is going to do on that show. He is going to eat people alive on his sort of pop music knowledge. I remember seeing something uh, when I was in college where he and Edwin McCain and somebody else were doing like a music celebrity Jeopardy. And it was a music themed Jeopardy show. And he was, in fact, they asked Edwin McCain, said, Edwin, how do you feel like you're doing? He says, well, not really good when I'm sitting next to Martin McGrath, who has the GNP of Brazil as his earnings so far. I mean, the guy just eats people live, which I love when when music, when musicians and singers and songwriters love music, because I, I feel that way. And so I feel a real simpatico with those kind of guys. And Mark McGrath seems to be one of those guys. I think he just really loves music. Here's the quirk about Sugar Ray, though. And people, I don't know that people know this. So they had two records that came out. Uh, the first one, which was called Lemonade, I think, or something. Be careful that cover, too. It's not for young eyes to see, um, which was basically heavy metal. Like, it was metal, rap metal, rock, which was kind of happening then. Um, you know, I don't think it did very well at all. Um, and so, but again, you listen to that record, and there's maybe a song or two that might feel a little poppy, but most of it is just this kind of almost jokey heavy metal rap rock, okay? They put out their second album, which was called Floored, and it had Fly, right? With like another one or two songs that sort of felt like that, but Fly was an actual realization of like acoustic pop rock, sort of fun, poppy moment. The rest of the record, they have a couple that flirt with that, but the rest of that record, Floored, is pretty much the same, you know, continuing on the theme of like heavy rap rock, right? Well, that album, I mean, just some fun facts, that song became the band's first hit, holding the number one spot on the Billboard Hot 100 Airplay chart for four consecutive weeks and spent eight weeks at the number one spot on the Modern Rock charts. Um, Floored, that album sold extremely well and was certified double platinum. The song, Fly, was included on VH1's countdown of the 100 greatest songs of the 90s at number 52. So out of all the songs in the 90s, it was number 52 of the of the best songs, according to VH1. So this is what this is what I think is so fascinating. So they're kind of this, I mean, you look at the band, especially those pictures, they look like rap rock, heavy metal 90s guys. I mean, they got dyed hair, tats everywhere. They're all like, you know, shirts off and doing their thing. Well, then Fly hits, and you just see the band suddenly does this huge pivot. The next record that comes out is called 1459, like 14 minutes and 59 seconds. It's sort of a hat tip to the 15 minutes of fame. It has two or three hard rock songs. So they go from a record, the two records before that were like primarily heavy metal, hard rock rap. Now there's only a couple of those. And then the rest are like these pop acoustic songs. It yields two more hits with Someday and Every Morning. And then it actually, they cover Abracadabra by Steve Miller. If you're wondering how much the band shifts, they shift from like heavy hard rock rap metal to covering Abracadabra. Uh, the next rap, uh, album after that, Sugar Ray, which was self-titled, had When It's Over and Hours, hours two more hits. So this is why I love this little moment, is that that band <laughs> went, okay, we have a super hit with Fly. And like I just would have loved to sat in the either the record exec meeting or the band meeting when there's like five of them kind of in chairs, sort of their arms crossed looking at each other. Like everybody's got new clothes on. They've got like, <laughs> they drove up in their new Lamborghinis. <laughs> everybody's like, you know. So let's just do a quick vote. Who wants to 
let's keep doing the heavy metal rap. Raise your hand. Okay, cool. That's okay. We have none. Okay, how many people want to keep doing these acoustic songs that I bet we write in our sleep? Okay, yeah, everybody. Okay, unanimous. Here, we're ditching the heavy metal rock rap. We'll do like two of those songs of record going forward. I just thought, I remember laughing so hard when this was happening because this was kind of when I was really beginning to listen to music. And I remember knowing them as like this heavy metal band. And then all of a sudden they have Fly as it's hitting. And they're like, yeah, no, no, we're not really doing that anymore (laughs) because we want to send our kids to college and we love living in Malibu, you know, on the cliffs overlooking the sea with this new money we're making. But it's also, and I don't mean to make light of it because I think it's a brilliant moment too because I'm going to tell you what's hard as as an artist is when you've identified yourself with a genre like they, I think they probably had with heavy metal, rap, rock, all that stuff. And then you have success and not feeling like you're selling out. Because I think a lot of people in that world that probably knew them were like, dude, whatever. But I think it's genius. And not only that, and maybe this is the most profound you know, thought of this whole thing, that they could actually do the other thing as well as they did. Because boy, were they good at that thing. And I'm going to tell you what. Here's your hot take from inside the hot take. I think Fly is an incredible... I think production-wise and writing-wise, it's one of the most well-executed pop songs of all time. What they do in the track and all the little samples and loops, it's just so good. And I think they really defined a, a moment and kind of started a thing to me, where which was that sound, that sort of like little instrument hook that's on acoustic or electric with a loop drum and these kind of like throwaway lyrics that, that are super sing-along. Mark's got a great voice, but it's not that great, so it's easy to sing along to. Really pronounced harmonies that you that are as much a hook as the main thing. And so it's not just that, but it's a little bit of that Phil Collins thing where who you know who knew that Mark McGrath and these guys could write these just incredible pop acoustic little ditties and then suddenly they do and they do it to incredible effect so a huge you know hat tip to those guys and a huge hat tip for continuing with it now granted I'm sure the checks were helping but I love that and I love that moment and I salute Sugar Ray and Mark McGrath and the guys for going you know what this is what we are now because I really like the songs and I'm glad they did hot take four So I was listening to this great James Taylor interview the other day, and he told this really fascinating story that I kind of wanted to relay and and talk about for a second because I think it's a pretty powerful thought and and just kind of a cool thought to think about within the music realm. So James is talking about um, getting signed at Apple Records, and so the story there is that the Beatles... um, formed this label called Apple Records for about a year. It wasn't around for long in the late 70s. Uh, James was in London living there. He knew Peter Asher, who worked with the Beatles and at Apple, Peter, who would later go on to produce his records and be and manage James, I believe. But this is before that. So Peter just calls James and says, hey, why don't you come down and play some songs for um, Apple and the Beatles and see if we can get your record deal here. So this is the best part of the story and hearing them talk about it, is it is it Peter allegedly leans into the hall once James comes to his office and says, hey, are there any Beatles in the house? And literally George and, and uh, Paul come in and listen to James play a couple songs. And they say, listen, we love this guy, Peter. If you want to produce him, sign him. So they sign him. Here's what's really fascinating about the story. One of the songs that he plays, if not the only song he plays, was Something in the Way She Moves, which is like, one, one of the greatest titles of all time, and two, one of the greatest songs of all time. Now, you probably see where I'm going with this. George Harrison later goes on to write and record with the Beatles Something in the Way She Moves. And he has, it before his death, he attributed getting that song title from listening to James Taylor play a song of the same name. And, and James in his interview is like, yeah, I thought that was like the greatest compliment ever. Now, a very important asterisk is you can't sue for song title infringement, meaning like if I wrote a song called uh, uh, Blue Haired Woman and then, you know, some guy wrote a song called Blue Haired Woman, I, it's, you don't see that. It's hard to do that. I think they have laws sort of protecting titles because titles are just 
you know, so hard to come by and they're just so everywhere. It's like, you're going to, you're going to probably infringe on somebody's <laughs> Lord knows how many songs are called, you know, all my love or I love you or, you know, there's just too much, it's too hard to do. So they can't really police that. So James couldn't have sued, um, George for that, but not only could he not have sued, but he thought it was a compliment, which I thought was so cool. And he just kind of speaks to like, I just thought, man, if I have made a Beatle want to write a song and then write not just a song, but one of the greatest songs of all time, like bar none, you're talking about an incredible song. Um, but I think what's fun to talk about with that and just to just to tell you guys and gals, you know, that is how music works. And I think that's one of the coolest things about music. And that's what I really took away from it was this fun you know, fact of going, that's what we all do. I mean, Paul McCartney has this famous quote about how we're all basically borrowing ideas from each other. And if a Beatle says that, you know, like, <laughs> then we're all doing it. Um, and I think that's okay. I mean, you don't want to steal someone's song or, or, you know, that's a whole other conversation. But I think this idea of like, it's just huge stew that we're all contributing to that's affecting each other. I mean, the amount of concerts I've gone to and heard a song and come home and wanted to write a song that was like that song, it's, it's innumerable. It's too many to count. And I think... That's a beautiful little moment where you see into how musicians' brains work. You know, George wasn't trying to steal anything from James. He was just, uh, he was inspired. And then James was honored that he was inspired. And those songs are unbelievably different except for the title. And I think that's a really cool moment, uh, sort of a peek into that. A sidebar, which I think I'll tell this story quickly. James talks about how he lived next to um, uh, the Lennons, uh, John and Yoko, uh, in New York and how he, it's this crazy story. If you get a chance to hear him tell it, it's nuts, but he was sitting in the window when he heard five gunshots and he was on the phone with Peter Asher. Who I was just talking about his wife. And he says, Oh my gosh, I just heard the cops shoot somebody basically. And she's like, Oh, that's terrible. And she later then called back like 30 minutes later and said, no, that was, you heard the five gunshots from John Lennon being killed. Uh, which I thought, man, isn't that crazy? And he, and he talks about that for a minute and just the sort of how he was, you know, not even whatever that would be feet away sitting in his window and that he got a call from her and she lived in LA and was calling to say, no, it's already on the news. And he just hadn't seen the news that a block away he had heard what had happened there, which I thought was really uh, bizarre and crazy. Hot take five. This is one of my favorite hot takes. I'm just going to go ahead on record as saying that. Um, I was listening to this great interview on Song Exploder, which for those music fans out there, it's such a fun podcast. It's like 20 to 25 minutes of artists talking about a song that they wrote and all the nuances and where they wrote it and how they wrote it. And they play little voice memos, the ideas and stuff. It's great. But Dan uh, Wilson was on there, um, who is Semi Sonic's lead singer and now has written hits for Adele and the Dixie Chicks and everybody with a face. It feels like Dan is so insanely talented. But before he was writing songs for other people, he was writing songs for his band Semisonic. And the song that uh, you would especially know from them, Closing Time, was a big hit for them. It was a number one hit, I think, on the modern rock charts back in like 96 or 7. But I love what Dan, so they asked Dan about like Closing Time, what's it about? And he's like, well, first, you know, the band wanted me to write a song about ending the set. So, you know, it's Closing Time, Let's Go Home. And he said, but you know, I was in this phase where I really wanted everything to sort of mean more than one thing. So every line of that lyric, he said, I wanted to have like a double meaning. So he goes on to explain, you can see all, it's all over the internet, the, the, you know, the, these stories about the song. It's really cool. But basically they were having their daughter, whose name is Coco. And um, he wanted to write a song about basically birth. So it's not just about closing time, last, you know, last call for alcohol and all that stuff. 
it, it every song if you go and read that that story it's actually or this the lyrics again it's actually this wonderful story about being born which sounds crazy right now you're like there's no way but you go back and listen to it and it's crazy how much Dan pulls off this sort of master stroke of of making so much of the song actually applies to being born like someone you know uh being born into the world and it just sort of reminded me that's one of the things that's so fun about songs I mean there's you you know if you read about in the air tonight by Phil Collins there's all these like is it about someone drowning and he witnessed a murder and all this stuff and I read Phil Collins autobiography which is incredible by the way um and he just says I have no clue it's about still I just kind of sang the songs in a row like that and they came out that way and that's why I kept them but it's a real it's it's funny how songs do this some other I looked this up and I thought these were fascinating sort of like songs that aren't about what you think they are Bonnie Tyler's Total Eclipse of the Heart who actually Jim Steinman wrote, and Jim Steinman you would know because he did basically Meatloaf's uh, "Bad Out of Hell" that record, and I think "Bad Out of Hell" too. They, they, I think Jim actually wrote those songs by himself and produced those records by himself. And "Bad Out of Hell" is still like it sold like fifty million copies or something insane. So Jim probably owns an island somewhere off Bermuda where he lives by himself, but he wrote it for a vampire rock opera. So "Total Eclipse of the Heart." He said, if you read the lyrics again, you'll realize it's actually about a vampire and vampire love which I was like the my love um, Harder to Breathe by Maroon 5 is about pressure from labels for songs so the label wanted more songs and he was felt like he was suffocating maybe one of the best double meaning songs of all time in that same vein is Sarah Bareilles' love song which is written um, from her perspective it's to the label I'm not going to write you a love song because you ask for it because you need one which is genius and I think most people kind of picked up on that and you know as a song sort of reached cult status that it has now but it's just cool and I think as fans and those who just love listening to music you never really know what a song is about and hearing that interview with Closing Time by Dan Wilson, I was like, "Oh, that's really cool to hear that," you know. Uh, and I've I've made the mistake with my music sometimes where people ask what something's about, and I'm like, "Oh, you know, I was kind of about this," or I don't know what it's about. And I found it's 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 wise to be careful because sometimes the stories people make up in their heads about songs make the song something different to them. And the minute you kind of give up what you wrote it about or what those vague lyrics mean, it can sort of kill the the meaning. And so it's a fun little game, but it's fun to sort of realize that some of these songs you love are actually about something else entirely, or are also about something else entirely, which is a real, it's a really amazing thing to pull off as a songwriter. Before I go, a quick heads up, make sure you hit that subscribe or follow button if you want to continue the madness and rate the podcast if you feel so inclined. And I'm actually a man of multi-talents and yes, talents are in finger quotes, but I have figured out how to work social media. So you can find me there under at Dave Barnes Music. Feel free to come enjoy the fun slash weirdness slash dog and pony show that is Mi Vida. Boy, I'm whipped. You guys tired too? Man, that took it out of me. That was a good time. Um, And as always, I feel like we did learn a lot. Uh, But I'll tell you one thing we didn't learn. And that's that Faith Hill is also a Christian campground in West Virginia. (laughs) All right. Thanks for hanging out, guys. And we'll see you next time on Dave's Five Hot Takes. Yeah! Yeah!